You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. He didn't just lose, he got beat. What's worse, he knew he was going to get beat. He wrote in his diary right before the Iowa caucuses, We are going to get beat. We are going to get beat. And yet, there was nothing that Vice President Bush could do about any of it. Nervous, Nervous. gloom and doom. Gloom and doom. We are going to get beat. It's just a question of how badly. The answer was very, very badly. Debate's starting to liven up a little. I thought I was going to die on the vine, but in any event... Don't cry about what you don't have. Use what you got. See me for what I am. The Republican candidate for president of the United States. <laughs> Mike Dukakis and Paul Simon have been attacking Dick Gephardt. I'm Pete Dupont. There is a solution. We went for the gold and we won it. We filled this tent with 10,000 hungry mosquitoes and biting flies. But they're not biting me. I love tortilla chips, but they can be a little... Here, I'm using deep woods off. These are all nice fellows. I know I can get, you know, there are, I know them all, and they all made mistakes. The people of the country want to, want to find out about issues like economic revitalization and opportunity for the future. Now there's news to share That's what I'm prepared to talk about. Reagan won Pennsylvania by the margin of despair. The biggest tax raisers in Massachusetts history. Deep Woods off. I want to express my deep appreciation to Senator Dole. Sancheros light and crispy because they're made by Pequeños Quibleros. Because it's your fight, too. Why do you think there are still questions being asked about this? <laughs> but we also know there's a problem on the horizon. Maybe it's because what's gets, that's what gets reported. What do you mean? For a better America, for an endless, enduring dream, and a thousand points of life. Your time has come. Pick up your slingshot. Pick up your rock. What was wrong with George Bush? Reporters, partisans, we're going to start asking this now. Just had been re-elected in 84 to his vice presidency in a landslide. Vice President George Bush would lose to a rival senator. I have a message to the Iowa voters, and what we want is a signal to go out here tomorrow night that the Bob Dole message... Bob Dole, who was traveling up and down and around the state of Iowa, taking credit for passing all of Reagan's bills, while George Bush sat in puffy chairs at meetings. He'd lose to Dole by a lot, too. But it got worse. Well, it has been a land bridge. He was also beaten by televangelist Pat Robertson. Robertson, a political newcomer. One was in the Tigris Euphrates Valley. Vice President comes in third. Right wing nuts are going to storm the stage now, an advisor says. Robertson comes in second. 
It felt like I got hit in the stomach, he wrote. What was wrong with George Bush? Democrats were going to start shifting their fire over to Senator Dole. Well, part of the reason was... My fellow Americans, I've said on several occasions that I wouldn't comment about the recent congressional hearings on the Iran-Contra matter until the hearings were over. Well, that time has come, so tonight... President Ronald Reagan, some of the seen in hindsight learned. now as some kind of godlike figure by some, was a dual-edged sword in 1988. He wasn't as popular as he was in 1984 when he won 49 out of 50 states. These past nine months have been confusing and painful ones for the country. That Iran-Contra scandal, all of Reagan saying what happened in this whole episode. He didn't know so this or that or who or when. by the Justice Department the Tower Board, the Independent Council, and the Congress. The Bush campaign was taken aback by the third-place finish. One said, we never dealt with anything like this or thought it was in the realm of possibility. New ground. No rules now. we got to figure out something. What do we say to the scribblers? Well, they noticed something as they board a sad Air Force Two to go to the next big state, New Hampshire. Where are those scribblers? Where are the reporters, the Washington press corps? Sure, there were some, but the big names, they were on the dole plane now. Gloomy. Gloomy, Bush writes in his diary later that day. How do you win an election when a chunk of your voters don't believe in the dream? No one knows. But one advisor has a plan. Something he said in a meeting, but it was one of... Hundreds of things, he said in these meetings, so nobody listened. Something about breaking backs. This is My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. I want to let you know that we have a website, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. There you will find ways to support the show. You will also find more episodes. Come on, babe, tell us, who do you think will come out on top this year? Eh, no groundswell this year. Is anybody leading? Nobody's out front. Babe Basignano had an Italian restaurant in Des Moines, Iowa, with a big neon sign. Babes, you couldn't miss it. It had some pretty good food. Babe was a former wrestler who had gone to New York and come back, and he'd dish out pasta and his opinions of the horse race with equal measure. And Babe held nothing back. Everybody in Des Moines would go to Babe. Law students with no money would go to Babe's and study over coffee. Babe didn't mind if they sat there for hours, practicing their craft. And later, when they became lawyers, they were paying customers. So when, in 1976, some guy from Georgia needed a headquarters, didn't have any money, so, Babe said, you can just meet here, Jimmy, and you can send all your mail here. Use this as your address. Next thing you know, Jimmy's in the White House, and now, every four years or so, everyone wants to go to Babe's restaurant, hoping some of that magic might rub off. Campaign consultants, staffers, the press candidates. Everybody 
1984, he has a problem because both Gary Hart and Walter Mondale wanted to come to Babes in Des Moines at the same time. And he gets the call, Gary Hart's coming. Wait, Mr. Hart, can you wait 30 minutes? Just enough time to see the Mondale people out. The caucuses bring a lot of money in here, millions. Something else. Babe was no angel in his younger days. At a time Des Moines was dry, he would be known to spike the coffee he served with liquor. I never had a problem getting customers. When a judge hauled him before the court to answer charges, he turned around and threatened the judge. He was found guilty of contempt. That was the past. Now, Babe is 74. He doesn't do that anymore, but he's still feisty with his opinions. And reporters started to catch up with Babe for his takes. Why not? Everybody in the Hawkeye State does kind of pick the president. At least at this time, Iowa voted first. Babbitt, he's going nowhere. Simon, real Real clean. clean. Gebhardt, he's all right. No groundswell. Al Gore won a lot of points when he brought a cow to the Iowa Fair. George Bush, he's got to get out of the government airplane once in a while. The caucus... He's ringing more bells than anybody else right now. Kemp, he's tough. He hasn't worked hard enough. Let me tell you something. Farmers, they like Jackson. Pete DuPont, he's too rich for Iowa. i tell you who I like. Alexander Haig. He's my kind of guy. He's real tough. Babe's home state had to be tough because it was under fire from all the bigger states in the 1980s. Why should Iowa be first? The country had caught on that it was the president maker. And it was starting to ask, is that fair? Is Iowa representative really of the nation? Talk starts in papers, in committee meetings. We got to get rid of Iowa. It's not representative. It's not picking good, solid Washington leaders. We can't send somebody in there to get buzzsawed by Congress once they're in the Oval. Or to lose 49 states just because people in Iowa like them. We get tired of the joke, says Jeff DeYoung, editor of the Opinion Leader in Des Moines. Every time they want to make fun, they find some hick farmer. And then we get some of those articles where they pick on Iowa. They'd be surprised of how aware we are. This state has the highest literacy rate. 400 newspapers. We have an international writers conference at the University of Iowa. Said Tom Harkin, Democratic senator. Oh, we've heard that all before. All against Iowa. They tried it at one Democratic committee meeting. Oh, we got horns in our head, and we are so bad. Florida wanted. New York wanted. They fought. Couldn't agree. And here we are. But a new thing is emerging in the 1988 campaign. There are now candidates in the race that are anti-Iowa. Just as candidates make their name in Iowa, the way Jimmy Carter, George McGovern, George Bush had. There are now candidates downplaying Iowa. They're going to use some reverse psychology on reporters. Pete DuPont, running for the Republican nomination, taking on farm subsidies. If you have that position, you might as well skip the state. And then you're saying to reporters, I don't even need Iowa. Look at me. Al Gore asked the media to have perspective on the results. Let's not go crazy just because someone wins here. Read. I'm not sure I can win here. Reasonable point, but not for the Des Moines Register. And I'll say in a slight editorial comment, while not representative necessarily in population, it had been a pretty open-minded state. High schools, Mexican restaurants, living rooms. 
they'd consider people that didn't have to be like them. 20 years from the time I'm talking about, and the Hawkeye State will select the first African-American nominee for president of the United States, despite the fact that the demographics haven't changed very much here. Iowa was not a feel-good state in the 1980s. Reduction of inflation was good for many, but not for hard farmers. Them at lower prices. That and 9,000 foreclosures of family farms since 1981 did not necessarily endear this state to the Reagan revolution sweeping seemingly the rest of America. They're open to something different now. Said Kitty Dukakis, wife of Governor Michael Dukakis of Massachusetts. They are all so friendly that you think they all support you. But they can't support everyone. They can't even support everyone they happen to meet. Tim Kirby, a retired construction worker who was interviewed at this time, was unsure of who to vote for. If we were to have a program, when the senator of Illinois, program, with a bow tie, Paul Seidel, spoke to the group in an informal question and answer session, Scott County Community year, College, with preference being given to the developing world, he impressed me a heck of a lot. But I haven't met the other ones yet. Just him and Babbitt. That's the thinking in Iowa. They expect to meet the candidates one-on-one, face-to-face, no joke. And, and you'll hear things like, I don't know if I'll vote for that guy yet. I haven't met him. You say that in California, they'll lock you up. I'm just tired, tired of our, our country, country getting kicked, kicked around. around. All the candidates we have are going to lose. This is terrible. So thought William Dunbar, Republican Party activist in New Hampshire. And so, with his own money, he tries something different in the 88 race. A new movement starting right here in the Granite State to draft Trump. The businessman, casino exec, real estate mogul, one of those rich and fabulous, but also a say what he means. We need someone who will win, Dunbar thought. The symbol of an era, read an article in Newsweek, who picked up on this story with a headline, Citizen Trump. There's nothing wrong with America's defense a little backbone wouldn't cure. Could not have been lost on him. Is that in saying that, he was attacking Ronald Reagan, conservative hero now, just a president in 1987, a potential partisan figure that you could attack or not. Higher numbers among Republicans in popularity, but you could take a swing at him and survive in 87, which Trump did take a swing at Reagan in a $100,000 ad in the New York Times. We're protecting ships that we don't own with oil we don't need, destined for an ally that won't pay its fair share. All Reagan policies. I'm tired of nice people in Washington. I want someone who knows how to negotiate. For someone not running for president, the full-page ad in the Times sure sounded like it. Let's help our farmers, our homeless. And what's not so crazy about this is that in 88, the biggest names in the race hadn't jumped in the race. They were the swirl. They were being talked about. For instance, basketball star and senator Bill Bradley, Mario Cuomo, indecisive but looming governor of New York, who made great speeches, spoke like an emperor with the, we must and it behooves us. Lee Iacocca, former CEO Chrysler, so many names could jump in. 
Picture 25 people in a room, portrait of Ronnie Reagan on the wall with one door open and one person is allowed through. And they're all going to elbow each other trying to get through that door. Maybe a few are a little closer to the door than others, but not much. Think about this, something else. If you take the last six presidents of the United States, okay, five out of the six, I can't really put Obama in this category, five out of the six had some role in this 1988 election that we're going to talk about in this series. Five out of six presidents, either an advisory role, either they made a stump speech or speech at a convention, advised a campaign, or were candidates. Two vice presidents selected in the time period after 1988 had run in the 1980 election. Both tried to become president, one did. There hadn't been, and there really hasn't been, so much of an open seat, an an open, anybody-can-win presidential race, where the establishment couldn't get their nails in. It starts with a political earthquake. The 1986 midterms are a disaster for Republicans. The Democrats gained eight seats in the Senate to take that body back, which is not a small thing because Democrats have controlled the Senate since 1955. And then when Reagan's party won in 1980, he took the Senate with him. And it was supposed to be a sea change. Democrats were never getting that back. Now the revolutionaries had seemingly lost their revolution in the House. Tip O'Neill's Democrats gained five seats. So they held the House 253 to 181. So 1986 has a psychological effect that's hard to understand today. It's not just a bad midterm for the president. Paul Kirk, the head of the Democratic Party, says, if there was a Reagan revolution, it's over. Indeed, the eventual Democratic nominee in this election would use these words. And my friend, the Reagan era is over. Not so fast, the GOP thought. If they had lost a battle in 1986, they still had a weapon in the war. Ronald Reagan himself. His approval ratings remained high in 1986. Reagan's at 63% approval. Come on. If you're looking at this game, Reagan will come in, back a nominee, and that person will continue this revolution, which is still very popular. 86 is a blip, they argue. Reagan even tells reporters he's against this two-term limit. He'd like to run himself in the 88 election, but he's constitutionally not allowed. The same month as the election result, 1986, allegations in a Lebanese newspaper, Ash Shira, exposes an arrangement between the United States working with Israel to get arms to Iran. Then Seymour Hersh and some other reporters are going to link the second part of that, is that the money used to sell arms to Iran is going to go to the Contras, fighting the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, an act specifically banned by congressional legislation, i.e. against the law. As there's fallout, Reagan has some less than Reagan-esque press conferences. He drops 20 points in his approval rating, and he'll be at 47 to 45 percent in the early part of 1987. Democrats smell blood. There's no other way to describe it. And a lot of folks who might not have ran now see an opportunity. As Congress investigates, he'll drop to 45% in the middle of the year. But you can't take this too far. Reagan's generally popular. Americans, about half of them, think he's doing a good job. It's just that he's lost some of that extra zing. He's lost that ability to anoint a successor just by his own hand. 
But one avenue that the Democrats probably wouldn't take, but could, is seen in the small town of Greenfield, Iowa. It's Super Bowl 1987. Most of the candidates are watching football or at football watching events. But Reverend Jesse Jackson is not. He's in overalls and a baseball cap milking a cow. In a photo that will be seen throughout Iowa. He's there in Greenfield to speak at the Greenfield Methodist Church, invited by Dixon Terry, a leader of the small family farm movement in the state. Something else to say. Greenfield, Iowa had just one black resident. If we cut that military budget without cutting out the fence and use that money to rebuild bridges and put steel workers back to work and use that money and provide jobs... No other contender. Gephardt, Simon, Dukakis, Babbitt, Gore, none of them would have taken that photo. Risk looking silly. But for Jesse, it was all about connecting with rural Iowa voters. He was embracing it. He was having fun. When he makes his official announcement, goes from exploratory committee to candidate in October of the same year, the high school band marches down the Jackson 88 parade from the town square to the fairgrounds. Jesse's riding in a convertible. The future farmers of America stand alongside the road. The Welcome Home Jesse sign. Huge circus tent. Boy Scouts lead the Pledge of Allegiance. Gospel Choir. Teamsters Bluegrass Band. And a reggae band. He was in it. And he wasn't in it to be a novelty candidate. It's an act of conviction. Conviction not necessarily just about myself, but about this country. Gary Hart's the front-runner in this race, the name in all the polls, and yet no one's quite happy about Senator Hart of Colorado. Party officials don't like it. Hart took on their guy, Mondale, in 1984, and he went all the way to the convention. The press isn't happy with it because he doesn't talk to them enough like the other Washington politicos do. I believe the American people are fair. I think they're a lot fairer than a lot of politicians and, and commentators and observers. And um, I'm willing to let them be my judge and not, uh, and not the pundits and experts. What he's got is name recognition and the path not taken bonus. The party ran Mondale and the Democrats lost 49 states. Why not look at this younger guy with new ideas? Run him instead. Maybe you would have beat or came closer to beating Reagan. Not this mess of two blowout elections in eight years. Senator Gary Hart made it clear this election is a choice to the national interest and the political establishment. So 88 starts in 87, and there's such a want of a candidate. Ben Kramer, whose excellent book, What It Takes, I'm going to quote from, quote a few sentences from in this series, said, Reagan had made the president big again after Nixon's moral fall, Ford's fumbles, and Carter's political fall. Now the presidency mattered. Why do you think there are still questions being asked about this? <laughs> Maybe it's because what gets, that's what gets reported. What do you mean? It's true. It could matter for GOP or Democrat. Whoever got the office, they would now lead in Reagan's stead. Who presented an alternative? Who was that term that Hart hated? The Atari Democrat made him seem non-serious. That Leon Panetta type, different from the other Democrats. Who was the free trade Democrat? Who had blocked 
the America First plank in the party platform in 1984 that they wanted to put through. It would require the U.S. government to buy only American-made products. Free trade will make us rich. Well, I mean, I think the people of the country want to, want to find out about issues like economic revitalization and opportunity for the future, reforming our military forces, developing a new foreign policy, and um, that's what I'm prepared to talk about. Now it was the time for New Ideas Heart to shine. 1988, the equal of Reagan, perhaps on that TV screen, telegenic. What could possibly go wrong? Well, Hart had a little problem with the Washington Press Corps. Not the entire media in the world, but the Washington Press Corps, the one that goes around and follows campaigns. The hordes, some call them. They didn't care about new ideas. They wanted to hear about Hart, who he was, his family life, where'd he come from? Who cares about that stuff? He thought, voters never ask me about this. Just the Washington Press Corps. Hart hated talking about himself. The fact that his name was originally Hart Pence, that he came from an evangelical family. He hated talking about his mama or his family, and that made the reporters want this information more. What was with this guy? Why didn't he want to share a Democrat from Ottawa, Kansas? What about his birth date? Why did he change his birth date? Weird stuff. Hart told his staff that he hated these name, date, mama questions that he kept hearing and declared over and over again he was done with them. Why do they want to write my biography? I want to talk about my issues. He told his staff that he wouldn't take photos. I don't want photos taken of me. And staff said, "You got Senator, you got to have photos taken of you. Okay, I'll have a photo taken of me, but I won't pose. You can take the picture, but I'm not looking into the lens of the camera. So they snapped the photo and Hart didn't pose. I do have uh, somewhat of a, um, uh, a freshman's awe about the Senate. I, I've said that during the campaign and I make no bones about it. You didn't argue with Joe Biden too much when he had an idea. At least his brother didn't. Man, I can beat this guy. You sure, Joe? Yeah, he's going to say, thank you, sir. He doesn't want to do it. He's tired. He's old. He's beatable. Caleb Boggs? You're going to beat him? He's been senator of Delaware forever. Yeah, we're going to beat him. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Joe, you're just a county commissioner. Newcastle County, before that, a blip as a public defender. And then Syracuse Law School. That's why I'm going to win. With Nixon running in 72, running up against George McGovern, who was nowhere in the polls in Delaware. They were going to vote for Republicans in even deeper number in 1972 than ever. The local guy was going to get in a scrap with a U.S. senator now? Joe, are you crazy? Boggs has been in office 25 years. See, the idea was, this was the first election that 18-year-olds could vote in the United States. And they were going to vote for that youngin, Joe Biden. Youngin? It's hard to imagine. We're talking about 1972. And the old saying went, you know, don't trust anybody over 30. Well, Joe Biden has just made that cut. He's 29 and something. So you can trust me, right? And they made posters that might have well just said in big font, Caleb Boggs is old. Joe Biden is young. In 1950, Caleb Boggs wanted to make Americans safe from Stalin. Joe Biden wants to make them safe from crime. Caleb Boggs' generation wanted to cure polio. Joe Biden's generation dreams of conquering heroin. What's he got against polio? That's not the point. It's the age of these problems. Boggs is still working on the old stuff. He didn't talk about Vietnam much or McGovern at all. So much coffee, he would say later. I mean, try drinking 10 coffees in a day. His mom hosted coffees up and down the small state where coffee and face-to-face meetings mattered. That's a lot of Joe for Joe. It was a nice little campaign to drink some coffee and talk to people, meet with groups of young people, put up posters, recruit people who will then put up posters for you. And all the whole time, Calabogs didn't take a shot at Biden. He stayed in Washington. He didn't campaign in Delaware. Why mention Biden's name? Why give him the coverage? All through 1971 and into 1972, it was coffee under the radar with candidate Joe. Um, I kept talking about the need to speak out. I took stands. I stuck my neck out politically. And no matter what I did, um, it always came back from the opposition or whatever, whether it was a a positive or negative way, it came back that, uh, you know, uh, yeah, there he is. You know, there he goes, that slick PR candidate. Or um, as you may or may not know, uh, my sister really did manage my campaign. No PR firm. My sister managed it for real. My brother Jim really did raise all the money for this campaign. He's 22 years old. Uh, uh, My brother Frank, 19, he really did run all of uh, one whole section of this county in the campaign. My brother-in-law Bruce, he really did manage the budget. And when the press did cover me, he'd say later, they didn't give me a snowman's chance in August. The GOP, in fact, in the state were told, don't mention that kid Biden. But something else. They didn't mention Caleb Boggs a lot either. They focused in the Delaware Republican Party on the strong points. They campaigned on Nixon's the one. And it became clear there was going to be George McGovern, so they attacked McGovern. Biden would say later, and this is exactly what smart guys told me. Why don't you put out a press release? Why don't you let them know all the great things you're doing? But I wanted to meet as many voters as I could, to let them see me, to let them hear me. And he'd do wacky things like going up to people and saying, Do you trust me? I'm Joe Biden. Do you trust me? 
I mean, I guess it's a good thing to check, right? Because it from Richard Ben Kramer, what it takes. Joe could see the whole thing in his head. What more? He could talk it. The organized emotion of a football play. Practice for months until it was clockwork. Where he saw in his mind before the snap of the ball how he'd run. That's how he'd win. Biden had to use his family and volunteers in the early day because the Democratic Party of Delaware could barely afford headquarters. Some Wilmington area lawyer's office. But also because they just wouldn't understand. And here he saw it. They are trying to erase me. They are trying to not talk about me and make it not a race, but in the process, they are erasing Senator Cal Boggs as well. He thinks it's not a race, but we are getting people, and he'll react too late. Biden was at 3% in the polls when he entered the race, and yet he rented the biggest and best ballroom the state had for his victory celebration. The most angry Biden gets during this 1972 year is when he starts getting national press coverage. Never mind that they flattered him, called him a college football and rugby enthusiast. Joe Biden keeps his athletic trim by skiing and playing extremely rough brand of touch football. The article used the word Kennedy. Good press for any other candidate, not for Biden. Radar Joe because it wakes up the state. Caleb Boggs comes to the state of Delaware and starts campaigning. Every Delaware Republican now is told up and down the state, go after Joe Biden. Talk about him now. Tax monster. Biden taxes every sentence. Liberal, Biden, liberal, McGovern. Biden hated the coverage. It was a little earlier than he wanted. He wanted to run up that middle before the defenders. But now, who cares? He's in it. And there was one really good development. Biden really wanted to get Caleb Boggs one-on-one in a TV debate. And Boggs had stalled. Why was he going to debate this kid? Now, Boggs wanted a debate. Asks him for a debate. Biden says yes. Bango, he's got him. Flash forward 16 years, and there's this account in Ben Kramer's book from Biden's somewhat frustrated aides where Biden's seeing this old house, this um, DuPont family house in Delaware, in the suburbs of Wilmington. The DuPonts are like Delaware royalty. It's an old Victorian haunted, like spooky thing. Now Senator Biden wants to buy it. He wanted to divide it up into subdivisions and make it into smaller houses and really make a fortune doing. All while being a senator and presumably supervising the work or even doing some of the work in his spare time. He didn't have the money to buy the house. Doesn't matter. He'd borrow it or something. And he'd explain to the two aides, Tim Redley, Tom Donilon, political aides, they're trying to get Senator Biden to focus on the campaign. Iowa, you got to make some stops there. We got to start. How are you going to counter 
some of the other people in the race. Hart's already got name recognition. How are you going to stand out? How are you going to reach baby boomer voters? Yeah, the gettable voter demographic in 1988. And he keeps talking about this house. You've got to see it. I'm going to split it into subdivisions. I'll borrow the money. I'll tell the bank what I'm doing. And especially Tim Reedley, who just joined Biden's office in 1987, and really kind of did that as a campaign job. He'd worked on other campaigns. He said, what? I, I, Senator, you're a Democrat. You want to be a land developer now? That's going to be reported in the paper. No, that's not what happens with me. I can talk to reporters and editors, explain it. Yeah, the Delaware reporter, Senator, you can explain it, but not national reporters. They won't stop. So we're going from middle-class warrior to landlord millionaire is your image? Come on. Biden starts talking about a tennis court he's going to put on there, and he can spend weekends there while running for president. Tennis court thing really sets the aides off. That's how you want to reach Reagan Democrats? The Wall Street Journal in 1987, in particular, got so mad at candidates talking about blue-collar values in the Reagan era that they started adding up the candidates' finances who did that. Personal stuff. Senators weren't used to talking about it. They're showing how much they actually owned. Biden doesn't get it. Oh, the Wall Street Journal covers me. It's great. I've talked to them before. They'll understand what I'm doing, the financing and such. They'll know I'm not a million-dollar landlord. The two aides look at each other. They just don't understand it. Don't you want to run for president, sir? Yeah. There are going to be others running. We've got to announce, not plant trees. But if I run a campaign, I'll need a place for the weekend. Is this guy for real? Tim looks at Tom. They knew it was going to happen sooner or later. The talk that the young Washington types got to have with a dreamy candidate. There's a real world, and it's mud. Nobody else was going to tell him. It's always the 20-somethings telling the 40, 50, or 60-something, year-somethings. Everything you do is under scrutiny. One thing you do could sink you. The two T's pressed Biden. What about that week in Hawaii you spent with uh, Pat Cadell, the pollster, and a vacation condo? Pat's a friend, guys. Has nothing to do with this. Yeah? How much of a friend? For instance, Senator, do you know whose townhouse it was in Hawaii? No, Pat, Pat put it together. It was owned by the band manager for Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper? Who is she? He. Alice Cooper. It doesn't matter, but it's rock star. It's not looking good for you right now for blue-collar voters. Who cares? You guys don't get this. I gotta show you this house. If you could see this house. And they come to realize they're gonna have to at least go through the ritual and see the Nam house. Come on. Get in the Bronco. I say it without boast or bravado. bravado. I fought for my country. I served. I I built. And I'll go from the hills to the hollows. From the hills to the hollows. Why does anybody run for president? Democracy tells us it can be anyone. Yeah, we know want the born in the country thing, but still, that's hundreds of millions of people who potentially could be president any given day. They don't say it's got to be a senator or anything. They could have. Why does a Bruce Babbitt run? Arizona Democrat. Former governor. Super rare at this time. That was Barry Goldwater country in Arizona for so long. But it's a small state. Why is he running for president? It's bigger now, so it might be hard to understand because in electoral votes, Arizona is bigger now than Wisconsin or Minnesota or Missouri. But 
Back in 1988, it's just getting started. It was like Mississippi or Nebraska, seven electoral votes. That doesn't stop Bruce Babbitt. He enters as a consensus builder for a presidential contender. Small time, small chances, but with one big idea. He'd have this idea. He'd pay off all of Reagan's deficit. How? Every American would pay a national sales tax, a consumption tax. He would tell reporters, my idea is not a popular idea, but it's getting there. As we reach down into our hearts and souls as Democrats and say, we're going to confront reality. We're going to speak honestly to the American people. Those are the kind of speeches that Babbitt would give. And they say he's right, Babbitt would say of the press and pundits. It's crazy, but in a national presidential race, the spotlight turns out to be the greatest place to launch the stupidest idea on earth and get people to listen. A tax on stuff for you to buy for something abstract. Why does a Paul Simon run? No, not that Paul Simon, not the musician. G.I. Bill. The other one, the senator from Illinois, who wore a bow tie. Huge ears, big glasses, 1930 haircut. Old-fashioned square of a congressman who beat Charles Percy, a liberal Republican, and was senator for just three years, now running for president of the United States. His proposal for 1980's Work Progress Administration seemed as old as his look. What made Pete DuPont run? Governor of Delaware. The party, Delaware, the party hated that he was running. No, Pete, no. He had changed his name from Pierre to Pete for politics. Pierre just didn't work in politics. No, Pierre, what we need you to do as a well-known governor is to take on Biden for a Senate seat in your state. Give him a race. But you aren't going to beat Joe Biden in Delaware in 1988. And DuPont wanted bigger things. But how? Could he win? Running against a vice president, not unlike Babbitt, he decided to use his platform to hit with a punchy issue. DuPont's issue. Privatizing Social Security. And he would speak truth to power. Dead on arrival, angered people when he brought it up. But you also couldn't not talk about it when he brought it up. When the news was talking about privatizing Social Security now, they were talking about Pete DuPont. That's the positive part. The negative is, when they're talking about you, they're attacking you. Jack Kemp went after him. Frankly, Pete, your idea of abolishing Social Security is wrong. And Jack, I'm not for abolishing. It's giving a market alternative. And then DuPont takes on phasing out subsidies to farmers. What, Pete? Farmers? Don't you know what the first state is? You're going to try to win by losing? He picks an issue that is so obviously not going to win him votes that he'll play the martyr. Look bad to Iowans, look good to the national press. Pete DuPont had one more thing. He'd make all the candidates sign a no-taxes pledge. He shoves it into Bob Dole's face at one point. Dole didn't like it one bit. As you're going to see, the dynamics of all the candidates are going to interplay in ways that no one candidate can really predict. And the strategies are going to come up against each other. Pete DuPont's crazy ideas like his no-tax pledge actually will impact not only the election we're talking about, the primary election, but the general election and even the 1992 election, but more on that later. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers 
and have a safe tomorrow. It's late night in Wilmington. The senator shows these two aides this lovely Victorian home that he's going to buy. I could do weekends here with Jill. I can break it out in subdivision. Can you see it now? And the words just start to blend for these aides. They just hear subdivisions, Jill, tennis court, weekend. What they see when they look at it is a completely overgrown lot with broken shingles. It looks like the steps are cracked. Even Joe Biden's enthusiasm is breaking as they ride back home. Nice ride, Senator. Now, here's the deal. None of that's going to happen. There will be no weekends. Everything you buy, every place you stay, every buddy you have, every girlfriend you have, every past life, your wives, everything is going to be up to scrutiny from the press now. This isn't going to be a race in Delaware. You won't see your house. There will be no weekends. And you won't be planting anything. Those days are over, Senator. This is a national race. You have to want this. Do you? I I do. I mean, the thing is, I don't really have to buy the house. The work of the two T's was finished. Okay, let's go over it right now at the table. The aides wrote it down. All of his contacts, everything that could hurt him in a presidential campaign. Anything he spent significant amounts of money on, who his friends were, the aides dubbed it the Night of the Bronco. George Bush heroically followed America into a war, and he skillfully followed Richard Nixon into China. And he somewhat less enthusiastically followed Ronald Reagan into the modern economics of tax cuts and job creation. Pete DuPont attacks Bush But the question is, in a Bush presidency, where would he lead America? So far, we haven't seen any vision. We haven't seen any principles. We haven't seen any policies. Many candidates in a primary means many knives at whoever is considered the frontrunner. Many points of attack. Like, who is this guy, DuPont, that's now attacking the vice president? It also frees the others to attack or not to attack the vice president or just let DuPont's attack stick. The amount of candidates would be deadly in 1988 on both sides, the Democrats and the Republican, for whoever was the front runner at the time. For George Bush, he had one advantage and one disadvantage as a candidate. Both of them are Ronald Reagan. Three out of five of Americans disapprove of Reagan's handling of foreign affairs at this time. Among Republicans who support Dole, four out of five disapprove of Reagan. Bush voters approved of his policy more than the national average did. You're running against Ronald Reagan, but Ronald Reagan is not a candidate. And George Bush has been a good vice president. Why should he be promoted now? Among other things, it was a lousy chance of success. At this point, it hadn't happened since 1836. 1836, Martin Van Buren, last sitting vice president to be elected president. Martin Van Buren. Meanwhile, Hope from the Heartland expressed Senator Bob Dole rapidly becoming the alternative. 
He was the majority leader of the Senate. He has most of the senators in his corner. So wherever he goes campaigning, he's usually got that state senator campaigning for him. And that state senator is obviously a statewide recognized person. Tested man, a proven leader for President Bob Dole. Because he's in the Senate, he could take some credit for Reagan administration successes. Tonight, I want to express my deep appreciation to Senator Dole for the indispensable role that he has played. But as an article said, he was boosted by his clever minuet of disagreement with fumbling Reaganite tactics on the Iran-Contra scandal. And he could become a rallying point for critics and skeptics. Dole had nothing to do with Iran-Contra. He didn't have to defend Reagan on it. It wasn't part of RNC orthodoxy. Defend Reagan on tax cuts. Defend Reagan on Star Wars. Defense programs. Not on Iran-Contra scandal. The Washington Post on January 5th, 1987 says that Bush was more informed of details than he has acknowledged and has been present at national security meetings where issues of Iran-Contra were discussed. One source in the White House says he knew as much as the president. This is all reported, and it's picked up by the Des Moines Register and spread to Iowa voters. Those great readers that we talked about, picking a president and really thinking about it, are reading these stories. Bush would stick to the excuse that his conversations with President Reagan was not something he could talk about. So he's never going to give you an answer of what he knows and what, and, and what he knows from Reagan, because that would involve him disclosing conversations he had with the man. Dole jumps on this. It's time for George to lay it all out. Other candidates attack as well. Pete DuPont says, Bush is in a cocoon on Air Force Two. Dole didn't have to be the only one attacking Bush. Al Haig says, it's time for George to come out of the cattle chute. Pat Robertson says, Bush is using a rose garden strategy without the rose garden. And that's the way it looked. The lessers would get blood on Bush and Dole would reap up the benefits. It wasn't clear what Bush could do to change it. I inherited a state that was an economic and financial basket case a massive deficit uh, state with the second highest unemployment rate in the country. And I think what we've demonstrated is that you can take public resources, combine those public resources with private initiative, and literally transform an economy. That's the kind of aggressive economic leadership we have to have in this country, beginning with somebody who knows how you balance budgets and make tough choices on spending, but also can put together a strategy for growth in this country which uh, will be successful, will create jobs and economic opportunity for all of our citizens. Mr. Bush has now appointed a judge. I've appointed over 130. This was the kind of statistic the Michael Stanley Dukakis thought. In an era where competence was a problem, where somebody had misbehaved in the White House, this is what was going to get him into the Oval. I have a record. They could sum up these statistics, what would put him into the White House in one word. And if it was summed up in one word, competence competence. Dukakis would make no mistakes, just as he had in governor. Massachusetts miracle. Economy's increasing, while other states' economies are down. I don't ask people whether they're Republicans or Democrats. I've appointed prosecutors. I've appointed defenders. I don't appoint people I think are liberal, people I think are conservative. I appoint people of independence and integrity and intelligence. Governor of Massachusetts, high-tech, good-paying jobs, success story of the Democratic Party. These other guys, Biden, Hart, they're dreamers. 
They're going to tell you what they might do if they ever got power. I've been in control of a state. They're going to tell you what America thinks Democrats do all the time. Dream. Talk. Ideas. Talk about running. They didn't govern. Privately, Mario Cuomo tells his fellow Governor Dukakis, We govern, Mike. And for that reason, Dukakis wouldn't get caught leaving Beantown without signing those bills. He had to sign. He had to move that paper. And when he was in the governor's chair, he wouldn't allow campaign calls. Get those consultants out of here. I've got a job to do. I'm still governor. That's how you get to the White House. When people see the fantastic job that you're doing. What's the main problem with Reagan? He's not in charge. He's not checking that paper flow. He's not checking what the subordinates are doing. The Duke would be in charge just like he had been in Massachusetts. No one ever expected Caucus to win any of his races. Not his first lieutenant governor's race where he surprised everybody and won. But he had the delegates. He worked them for years. And then in the primary for governor against a strong attorney general, backed by some of the bosses, he had stood up for coastal residents against development, got involved in the small details, and won that battle, and won the race. Little question in his record, especially as the Republicans were failing all over the place. Who else? At one point, he raises $4.5 That's big money in 88, more than anybody. Some of the press will write it off. Massachusetts defense contractors, Greek-American fundraising circles, favors owed to a governor in a state. Of course he's raising money, but it's signaled. He can lead, and he has the ability to finish a long campaign. Not everybody can. He had other assets. Dukakis has a huge advantage in New Hampshire, which is going to be the second state that votes. New Hampshire Democrats knew Michael Dukakis as a friendly next-door governor. They had a Republican governor, and when more liberal New Hampshireites needed a favor, when they wanted to put the kibosh on a nuclear power plant, Dukakis helps them out. He had enough goodwill among New Hampshire Democrats... If the caucus could just win Iowa, New Hampshire would fall, and then suddenly, two wins in a row, and nobody else has wins. Early momentum. Everyone thought that, of course. Just win Iowa. Richard Gephardt, a red-haired Missourian running from Congress, figured the same thing. Just win Iowa. And that would set up New Hampshire. They were all thinking that. And they all still think that every time there's an election. This is part one of You Break Everybody's Back, the 1988 election. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. When we continue, two future vice presidents enter the race, but there's problems. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.